Welcome to Conversations on Cub Creek, a podcast situated in the hollows along Cub Creek, west of Nashville, Tennessee. Good conversation with smart, passionate, interesting people, and great music, some good beer, and some good food. Thanks for spending your time with us here on the creek. Enjoy. Welcome to Episode 2, The Impact of Uruguay and Cuba on Two Master Musicians. In this episode, we talk about the influence of the blues, jazz, and early pop music coming out of Uruguay and Cuba and its impact on my guests. Tonight, I'm joined by two virtuosic musicians, jazz pianist Enrique De Boni and cellist and bassist Ron De La Vega. Enrique grew up in the famous hot club of Montevideo, Uruguay. And starting in the mid-60s, he traveled the world playing blues and jazz clubs and festivals. Enrique was taken under wing by the famous American jazz pianist Hampton Hawes, becoming fast friends and sharing many musical experiences together. He's open for Miles Davis and was probably the last piano player to play with the legendary bassist Jaco Pastorius. Ron De La Vega, born to a Cuban father and an American mother from Alabama, has played cello and bass in big bands and orchestras like Dave Brubeck, Benny Goodman, and Mannheim Steamroller. He's played live and recorded with tons of artists from Los Angeles to Nashville, including the Crickets, Jerry Lee Lewis, Albert Lee, Eddie Van Halen, Waylon Jennings, Jerry Reed, Brenda Lee, and Nancy Griffith's Blue Moon Orchestra. I'm going to stop right there because if I read his complete list we'd run out of time to talk. I promise you that I did my best to make this episode a single hour, but I failed miserably. So, once again, I have separated this episode into two one-hour parts. I had two master musicians hanging out talking about their extraordinary lives and jamming together. I didn't want the night to end, and you won't either. So let's get the conversation started. is sweet. Uh, well, welcome, my friends, Ron De La Vega and uh, Enrique De Boni. It is not easy these days in particular to get virtuosic musicians in one room. Uh, it's hard to do that in general, but in these days of uh, quarantine, it's even harder, but we have pulled it off. I cannot wait to talk about Uruguay and Cuba and all that's influenced you both. But Ron, you got the upright bass, and uh, Enrique, you're already behind the keys. So um, seems like we ought to start this off with a song. This first song was written by George and Ira Gershwin, I think in 1928, and first sung, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1930 Broadway musical Girl Crazy by Ginger Rogers. Here's Enrique De Boni on piano and Ron De La Vega on bass playing Embraceable You. Thank you. 
Pretty sweet. Enrique, you've played in jazz clubs all over the world. But Some of them, yeah. But you started uh, at a pretty cool club called the Hot Club Correct. in uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, where you're right. from. So tell us a little bit about that club and how does someone become a jazz piano player? How does that work? Well, it was not easy, but with persistence, was help from others. Especially one friend, dear friend, passed away many years ago. When I started, I didn't know anything about jazz or the only thing I heard in the radio was the orchestra of Les Elgard, Ray Anthony, all those things. And I thought that was kind of jazz. But a friend of mine took me to that jazz club called the Jazz, the Hot Club. And it was a new world for me. And was this like a seven-night-a-week club downtown? No, it was open what? Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. Okay. And a couple of times a month, Saturday afternoons, for jam sessions. And uh, little by little, I start waking up to this, wonder, this wonderful music. What was your the first time that you showed up there? How old were you? Because I'm, I'm picturing this club being filled with kind of old, venerable jazz players, and you're pretty young when you show up. There. 16. Yeah, you are pretty young. So <laughs> how did they take you when you walked in and said, Well, hey, I, I, knew, I knew a couple of songs only that I read because my ear was pretty good then and it's now too. But uh, I read these things because I didn't have any idea of harmony. So I read these two songs that were Laura and Moonglow. Yeah. So Laura, I play like this. Reading straight off the sheet music. Yeah. 
And, and what was their reaction when you went in? When, was this an audition or? No, it just, they told me there were not 20 people. It was early in the night. And my friend, the piano player, was there. It was the president of the club. And he said, so you play piano? Because my other friend told him that I play piano. And said, so, you want to play something? And I did, and there was a drummer there. So he followed me, and I played that. And he said, oh, you have conditions you can play. Years later, they told me, you didn't play a thing there. You were horrible. <laughs> so at least they had the class not to tell yeah, you, not right. to break a 16-year-old art. But I started liking it, or what I was hearing, the records. This was a tremendous club because it was a non-profit organization just to uh, diffuse the jazz in Montevideo, in Uruguay. You know, people, they will go there, listen to music. We had uh, blindfold tests, like Downbeat, Brand Magazine, Dad, uh, jam sessions, conferences. We were instructed people who the just great musicians were so would you go there and just kind of initially just kind of soak it all up as a right. 16-year-old piano player? Right. And, and who were some of the uh, kind of more famous names or uh, kind of the piano players of the time that were tearing the hot club up? Well, in, uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, there was no jazz club at the time. So we had Lalo Schifring, the Mission Impossible composer, going there whenever he could jump the lake of the river plate and play there in jam sessions there. Wow. And of course, some other musicians, they go there like Gato Barbieri, Argentina saxophone player. And many people that they would come from United States that were in tour playing jazz concerts. So it was a great experience. So you originally were going to be an architect, I think. Right. By... Mom's edict or dad's? Well, no, my dad. My dad was a businessman. My mother was a teacher, but she loved for me to be either a concert pianist or an architect or both. <laughs> but uh, I was a studying architecture two blocks away from the club. Uh, well, that's too close to the music too club close. to be able to pay attention right. to school. Right. So how did you get to the point, and tell us a few of the ports of call that you played in. I know that you've been in Spain, and was it Rotterdam, and yeah, Germany? I, well, how, how did you get to the point where you well, begin as a teenager in this club, soaking it all in, and then finally take wings yourself? I learned a lot with my mentor, a jazz player from Spain that was living in Uruguay, Paco Mañosa. He... Stay with me till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Explain to me, this is a F minor 7, this is a B flat, and so on. You were playing those already, you just didn't know what they were. Right. And then how the patterns of harmony they were developing. And I learned how to associate what I was learning from the records. And So when I was, you talk about kind of learning the harmony and kind of expanding the arrangement. Can you show us just a sec of what you're talking about? What, what kinds of things was he teaching you? Well, the first thing that any jazz player, 
any jazz player learns is the 12 bar blues. So. And so how did you make the leap from the hot club and Montevideo well, to these other places? Im immediately after I became comfortable and started playing jam sessions, we had uh, our first jazz trio, piano, bass, and drums. And then they called me to be part of the Dixieland band. That it was a Dixieland band? Yeah, Dixieland band. So we was that a thing in South America? Yeah. or No, but... <laughs> It was a show. It was <laughs> right. a show band, and we were playing in dances, TV, radio. And we made good money, so we were playing Royal Garden Blues and all that stuff. But we were also doing comedy, and we were very successful at that time. So when I was 17, I was already playing that, and I already became part of several other groups recording jingles, playing in TVs, radio, clubs, you name it. And uh, by 1967, things are starting to go down in Uruguay. In terms of the ability to get gigs? Right. <clears throat> and uh, so we wanted to get out of there, and a friend of us got us a contract to go to Spain, to Mallorca. And uh, 1967... When I was 23, I left for a three-month contract, and I never went back. Then different countries came. From Spain, we went to uh, Denmark, Holland, Germany. So you're busy playing crazy hours, I'm sure. It's probably oh, yeah. like our version of Broadway here in Nashville. You're playing you know, four-hour sets, six-hour sets. What are you doing? Well, uh, the worst part was in Rotterdam. The, I remember on Mondays, the first set, because in these countries at that time, I don't know now, they make you play like you're working in a factory. The first set, the Monday afternoon, was from four afternoon, from the afternoon to a quarter to nine in the evening. <laughs> then you have 45 minutes to eat, and the second and last set was from 9.45 till 1. <laughs> Sounds like things haven't changed that much for uh, it was club work. <laughs> it was horrible. Was there a moment when you kind of woke up and went, my God, I'm a jazz player, or did you not really have time well, to kind of have that? I had, uh, I had a contact that already came out from Italy to form a jazz fusion, Brazilian jazz fusion group to open a jazz festival in France, in Antibes. In 1969, in July, our group, it was a quintet, opened for the one and only Miles Davis. And it was great. Yeah. 
Well, that had to have been at least one moment when you went, my God, I'm a jazz player. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's a great life. You know, Ron, you must uh, connect with a lot of those stories, even though uh, kind of different place. It's kind of the sounds like the, the growing up of a musician. You're the son of a Cuban father. Right. And mother from Mobile, Alabama? No, from uh, outside of Birmingham. Outside of Birmingham, right. Steeped in the Church of Christ. Oh. So uh, a combination and, of a, a, a Cuban dad and a, uh, a Southern mom. That's a pretty interesting mix. Buenos dias, y'all. <laughs> I suppose you could think of it as kind of a great culture clash, but in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the story of the American melting pot. But then they also raised me in the Midwest. So I had the thick you got Southern out. accent the Cuban accent, and then everybody around me is talking like Johnny Carson. <laughs> I did not talk. So tell us about that combination of cultures and probably even language in the house and how it uh, affected you growing up and, most importantly, kind of informed the musician you became. That's well, a pretty unique story. The, the uh, My dad was very influential with the music, even though he, he was a physician, a scientist you know, at heart, uh, but he had the, pa- you know, the the passion for music, but he couldn't carry a tune. I remember him singing along with the records, and I would have to leave the room because it was so far off. It was, you know, bless his heart, man. He, root, you know, so he rooted they, for you, though. Oh, man, it was it was rough, you know. But he would play some of the, the old Cuban music that he brought over from— he moved to the United States in the 40s so uh, and fought in Korea. He was one of those mash doctors, actually. Um, wow. But he 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 played a lot of that. You could tell when he was kind of getting into his moods and stuff like that. He would suffer from different uh, directions with his mood, and he would bring out the old Cuban records that he brought over with him from the you know, from the thirties and forties. That you know the last ones that he had, um, and that's what we listened to. And that's I don't even remember a lot of their names because it was just played. And this is a song that's that, kind of you that, heard. Uh, yes, this is a song that just. I so was that would be kind of, of streaming from the living room. From the office that he was in. He, okay. you know, he had everything in the office, and that's when I would go back and hear that and, and join him in the office yeah. and listen. Um, but Sibonet, um, I remember him and I having an argument. Not an argument. When you're younger, you don't always want to follow your... You don't want to be your father. You want... you know They don't know anything, the parents. So I, I've heard the first time I heard uh, Oye Como Va from Santana... I thought that really sounds familiar, not realizing that I'd been listening to it from yeah. Tito Puente, the writer of it. Yeah. Who is not Cuban. Hmm. Everybody associated him, he's actually Puerto Rican, but everybody associated him with Cuban music that he, he would write that. But I remember he, he couldn't stand the Santana version because of the electric guitar barreling through it. He didn't like that. Yeah. But everything else is identical. And I heard the, the contrast with it, with the modern versus what Tito Puente did, which was just, it was almost, if you listen to Tito Puente's original version of it and what Santana did, except for the electric guitar, it's almost all the same thing. So for your own kind of, you know, we, we talked about Enrique finding this hot club as a teenager and able to be taken under the wing by musicians. At this point, you are in Illinois. I'm in Illinois. Where in Illinois? Danville is my hometown. It's right around Champaign-Urbana at the right. University of Illinois. So wh- how did the music bug uh, first take you over? And then, you know, was there, 
I, I imagine this Cuban influence kind of the way that you just described it, kind of off-axis music and language being spoken. But you also had, you know, a, mo- a mom from the South, so it wasn't all just a Cuban household, obviously, in terms right. of culture and language. So right. how did how did that meld together to, or did it even have an effect in your beginning of music? It, it did, but I didn't realize it at the time. I'm still realizing it now as yeah. I mature. Um but I didn't begin with, with pop music in general. I was a cellist. I remember when they first brought the instruments into the elementary school. This is when we were living in DeKalb, Illinois, the Northern Illinois University. Um, I heard the instruments, and I heard the cello, and I thought, that's what I want to play. So cello is your first instrument? Cello is my first instrument. And, I and how old are you that, at that point? Well, there I was in second or third grade. So Wow. Yeah, I was... I was very young, heard that, and I thought I wanted to play that instrument. And my family was all for me doing strings because my grandmother uh, was on, dad's the, side? on my dad's side was one of the first female Cuban concert violinists. Wow! Um, and she dropped everything when she had a family. She thought she was she played the role that she was supposed to at the time, but you know, falling into the social norms. But she was uh, quite an accomplished concert violinist. And I remember I saw her, or she saw me, I don't remember, but as, as a baby. And then she died, like, within a month or two later, they thought, You're, he, she's passing the music on to you, yeah. which was a feeling of it. But then when I picked cello, they thought, no, you, you, you're so small, you look like you're playing an upright bass. So <laughs> they kept saying, you need to play something smaller. But I, I flat out told them, if I couldn't play the cello, I'm not interested in doing it. So there was something, it sounds like there was something in the DNA that kind of spoke orchestral to you. I mean, definitely. And that's what, how instrument. I began with everything. I, I, you know, I listened to what my father played at home. And then obviously the Beatles came out when I was, you know, a little bit older uh, from that. But it, it um, that's the only time I got into to the pop music. But the Beatles still satisfied that because they did have a lot of orchestrated things going on, the, uh, the orchestral arrangements and stuff that they did. So it kind of played into it also. But it, it, I was really, I began nothing to do with jazz, nothing to do with, with Afro-Cuban you know, music. It was all orchestral that I would do. That's interesting. You know, so, so it does make you wonder whether that was uh, kind of passed along by grandmother. I, I wonder. Yeah. Although you were hearing some of that being played out of your dad's office. You, right. you mentioned uh, Oikomova. Yes. And uh, it was Tito Puente was the original right. cut of that. He wrote you, that. Was that the first cut you heard? Well, I had heard that at home without really realizing it until I heard Santana. It was again, it was okay. dad's music. You know, right. it wasn't necessarily what I was. You know, as a young, as a little kid, you just don't. You know, that's the old people's music <laughs> type thing. Well, I have a little clip from uh, Tito Puente, and uh, I don't remember quite what clip I grabbed. But what should people? Let's listen to it a little bit. And what should people be listening for uh, in this song? If they wanted to understand why it grabbed you, oh, the the, the uh, well, like I think all Cuban, all mostly Latin music, it's layers of of simple rhythms working together. Each part, if you if you listen to it, is actually not complicated, and they keep putting the farther these, the arrangement goes. The farther the arrangement goes, you hear all this. You know, it sounds like it's complex. But it's very simple parts put together, and the way it's put together, you know, if you listen to, you know, it, uh, he has a section in there where it's, it's like he, the horns are doing a certain melody. He's got everything doing s- different simple melodies, 
but they overlap when they play it together. It just it's just huge orchestrated sound. So do you think it was that relationship between these rhythms and different instruments and how they melded together uh, that kind of grabbed you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take a listen. This is uh, Oikomo Va mm-hmm. by uh, Tito Puente. <laughs> As it fades out, you yeah. can't hear it anymore, but <laughs> they add another part in that goes over that and fits beautifully, and all of a sudden it starts to sound more complex. Then they add another simple part over the top of that, and it becomes this full sound as they keep adding simple melodies with simple rhythms, and it just multiplies into this huge sound. I hate this question when it gets asked of me, but uh, it seems like with Cuban and South American music, it seems more of a valid question. Do you think it was the groove and the rhythm of these songs that captured you first, or the melodies, or was it the combination? What was it? Honestly, for me, it was the, the rhythms. That, that you know, Even though I'm a melodic-centered person with the, with the cello, you, you hear the music... And you, 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 can't stand, you can't sit still. You can't stand still. You have to move. It yeah. just it, it makes you move, and that's what grabbed me. You had mentioned a second song when I asked you guys about songs that had uh, inspired you, and you mentioned the song, uh, is it Sibone? Sibone. Sibone by Ernesto Lacuna, I think originally. Uh, you said it was influential for you. I've got a clip of that as well. Um, when we go to listen to this clip, what should people be listening for? Well, the thing is, too, uh, Ernesto, the, the, the composer of this song was, uh, as I'm finding it, I didn't know a lot of this at the time because I didn't, I didn't study music history back when I was a kid. Yeah. But he was actually like the uh, Cuban version of Gershwin. Hmm. He wrote. How you do know, you mean? Just in terms of the amount of stuff that he wrote? Not the amount of stuff, but he he it was it was um, an orchestral type leap into a little bit of, a little bit of a jazzier type thing it wasn't strictly a classical composition so it had that anthemic quality maybe that anthemic quality think about and, film and or... he was writing with with an orchestra in mind a lot of the time so he it was it was kind of like a a, a a Cuban Gershwin if you listen to it in that aspect you'll hear the different well if, if this is one of the original ones that he did you'll hear some of the instrumentation that you would not really expect. In, in some kind of a, 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 um, a pop world, necessarily. Well, here's a Sibonet. Sibonet? Sibonet. By Ernesto Lacuna. A little bit of big band going on, too. Yeah, and I can hear the kind of film score quality you talked about yes. with that. Well, that was a perfect description because I could hear uh, both the the, the rhythm um, power that it gave you, but also it had this kind of anthemic quality to it. Was that something that you picked up, uh, um, Enrique, in um, 
in Uruguay and South American music, did it have that same kind of anthem film-like quality? Well, Uruguay is a very small country, but we are strategically situated very next to Brazil. So the Brazilian music is practically absorbed in Uruguay, but we have our own. It's called Candombe. Also, we have the tango that was originated not only in Argentina, like everybody says, because Argentina is 15 times bigger than us, but it was originated in Uruguay too. So we are a little bit with a lot of mix. Bit of an island yourself, yeah. yeah. All right, so let's play another song live. Uh, this is a tango dating back, I think, to 1929. Who, who is it and what is it? Carlos Gardel, he was a legend in Uruguay and Argentina. The name of the song is probably one of the most famous from a movie that he acted too, El Día Que Me Quieras. And is this something that you learned at 16, younger? No, way, way after that. So why is that? Because it sounds like it's kind of a standard for you. Yeah, but it's not, a jazz, it's not a jazz song. Right. This is not a beginner no. song. Right. So uh, let's hear this song. Thank you. 
like, well, that was beautiful. Aldea K. McCanners, which right. means uh, the day that you will love me. Right. Well, no wonder you didn't learn that at 16. That's not an easy piece. I mean, technically, it, it doesn't seem like the hardest piece I've ever heard, but you have to have a little bit of life under you to play that piece, you think? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that's, a, that's a beautiful piece. And have you, has that been a staple part of your, your sets or just kind of? Never. Because, uh, I don't know, I learned it very late in my career. Shame Even on me. Even though it was basically your Guayan standard. Yeah, but uh, you don't play it in jazz repertoire. But one day... Because say, it's too kind of yeah. classical and <clears throat> anthemic, or why is that? No, I don't know. It's, and I, one day I say, I'm going to learn it because it's time for me to learn it. And of course... I have listened to that many times. I went to the piano, and I remember it. I don't have sheet music. It's all here. Right. All here. Well, it's well done. You had mentioned the song Doodlin' by Horace Silver. Yep. Um, tell us, I have a little clip of that I want people yep. to listen to. Well, what should we be listening to? What should the audience be listening to to figure out why it, why it influenced you? When I started going to the Hawk Club, this pianist, Horace Silver, and another pianist by the name of Hampton Hose, that then that pianist, Hampton Hose, had a crucial time in my career later. They kind of woke me up to this music. Doodling was the first song I heard, and when I heard that in the whole club, I said, this is what I like. This is what I want to do. And Hampton Hodge was the piano player on it, or no, no. This is Horace Silver. Okay, but I tell you later about Hampton Hodge. Quickly again, what what are a few technical things or or song characteristics that people should listen for to understand why it grabbed you? Well, uh, this is a regular twelve-part blues with a little twist. It's a blues. The only problem is in D flat. But, <laughs> well, if that don't give any musician the blues, nothing will. <laughs> but uh, I love the music. I love the the melody and the way it was executed and uh, just caught my attention. I say, this is the type of music that I love. It's funny because you mentioned early on about the blues being a precursor for you. And I, I got from your comment a lot of jazz players that you start with like these 12-bar blues or or these blues riffs. Uh, so it sounds like you were kind of leaning towards the blues anyway. Why do you think you didn't become just a straight-up blues player? Well, uh, because blues is the base of everything mm. in jazz. Mm. So you're going to find blues like this one. It's just a pattern is used in several songs and several uh, instrumentations all over the world, but it's not uh, played in the way that the blues or rhythm and blues or gospel. It's a different style. Can you help it's, people understand like what, like one difference between this type of blues and what other people might be familiar with? Well, you are you have blues also in country music too. Sure. You know, and uh, so are we talking about rhythm here? It no, it, it no, no. Different blues it's, or? Well, it's different feeling, first of all. Okay. Uh, more or less, the blues in jazz, they are playing instrumentally, like this one. Okay. 
Well, let's uh, listen to Doodlin' by Horace Silver, and we'll see if we can figure it out. Pretty hip. I can see why it grabbed your attention, Ron. What do you think it is about that "quote unquote" type of blues that's a little different? Well, it's it's the, it's the same. The jazz and the blues is all the same harmonically. There's a different feel to it. I think is the main right. part of. We're we talking about rhythm and groove, or no, well, initially it's it's the 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 chordal structure, the melodic structure. The you know the chord patterns are really similar. Right. And jazz takes it into another mm. further thing where it's like a bunch of two fives. Right. You put that into it and it becomes more jazz. And you and you can have blues and rock and roll too then. Sure. You so can have it that way too. Could you take that and modify it into the jazz world for us to show us that? Well, uh, you take these twelve bar blues that sometimes are modified. Like uh, Miles Davis' All Blues. Mm-hmm. Back to one. And now it goes different. Instead of back to one, so it's different chords, different inversions. It's it's similar. It's really kind of the same chords, but you have chord substitutions more so in jazz. Right. It's not as strict as what the blues would be normally. There, that's kind of a there's a few pretty things, but it's pretty locked yeah. down more so. And also, uh, you can have modifications in the blues itself. Instead of being major. Is a minor. Mm-hmm. Wow, I see your point. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, it, it's amazing because you can hear traditional blues in that, especially in the left hand. Yep, and then those chord inversions you were talking about that really speaks jazz. Right. That's substitution kind of, a, of the substitution of, you know, you, you substitute chords with other related chords that would go in, in the place of a five. He went, you know, he goes to like a, 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 a sharp five. Right. Diminished, you know, so you're, you're you know, I know I'm talking yeah. numbers with, with people that may not know what I'm talking about, but there are chords that are very, that are related that you substitute that for. Right. In the song, and that so becomes people, more jazz. So the cool thing about jazz in one way is that it is universal in that people hear that five, they hear that familiar landing place, but it's just a little bit different. A little bit also, different. Also, sometimes, in many cases, they have 16-bar blues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of 12, they added one bar just for the heck of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Another song you had mentioned, Enrique, and, and correct me on the title, is it Andorina? Andorinha. Andorinha by Antonio Carlos Jobim. Right. Um, 
I have a little clip of that. What should people be listening for in this song that they can understand why it captured you? The sweetness, the melancholy of Antonio Carlos Jobim, the influence of Frédéric Chopin in some... Classical composer. Classical composer in some descending lines like... So when we're talking about jazz, we just talked about the blues influence being the base of jazz, but now we're talking about classical composers. Um, yep. So it strikes me uh, that one of the things about jazz is that it's pretty all-encompassing of all music types. Is that a fair? Yeah. Antonio Carlos Jobim, for me, was one of the biggest influences, too. It came later when I started to get into the Brazilian music, and Antonio Carlos Jobim took a lot from Gershwin, from Ravel, from Chopin too, and you can hear it in some of these some of these works. Andorinha is the typical example of influence of Chopin there. Great. Well, that's what we'll be listening for then. So this is um, Antonio Carlos Jobim and Andorina. In, in in this song, Antonio Carlos Jobim used one of the best. Bass players. Who Ron was that? Ron Carter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. well, let's listen to him. I think the trombone players, I'm not mistaken, is Herbie Green. I'm not sure. I think so. I'm not sure. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you talked a lot, and I certainly heard it, you talked a lot about that clip having this Chopin um, reach, yeah. but it also had a very 70s uh, uh, keyboard yeah. to it. That Yeah, it's a Fender that Rhodes. Ping, that, that Rhodes ping pong. Yeah, it's with an Echoplex. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty... Well, I guess, so let me ask this question in, just in terms of talking about labels. We're, we talked about blues, we talked about classical, and if we understand jazz as kind of the uh, catcher's mitt for a lot of different kinds of music, where does the label fusion come in? That's difficult. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... Because I, I wanted to say fusion because we're talking about like three or four different types of music that we heard in that 20-second clip, but I know that's probably not what that word... You, you, it's hard not to blend it, and that's kind of what fusion does. It's, it's like, like you're noticing the instrumentation, using the Fender Rhodes with the bell-type sound, you know. But, you know, that would have been originally done on a regular piano. Right. Even, but they did it with the, with the, did it with the and, and that was cut. When do you, when do you think that, that track was cut? Uh, that is in the 70s. I was going to say yeah. it had been the 70s. Yeah. yeah. And uh, even Miles Davis, he went out of his milestone quintet format with several, you know, three or four different people, different uh, groups of people playing. And uh, he started fusion with rock and roll. When we opened for them in Miles Davis in 1969, he was already fusioning with rock and roll, and he started to do it in that album, Beaches Brew. Okay. 
God, kiddo. Uh, what and, an album. And where was that uh, festival that you opened from? In Antibes, Jean Le Pen in France. That must have been a moment for you. Yeah. I think as musicians and other musicians listening tonight will understand this point, we hop from lily pad to lily pad for experiences that keep us going. And th- those moments, uh, and they're sometimes few and far between, unfortunately, but those moments that make you go, I'm going to give this another few years because that one hour was well worth yeah. it. And that, that moment in front of Miles Davis had to have been one of those moments. Right, and, you know, to share the stage with these guys and also be part of a festival where Oscar Peterson Trio was there, Nina Simone, oh, yeah. um, Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> yeah, but anybody good playing that day? Or? Oh, my God. No, there was a whole week, but, of course, we enjoyed everything. Well, you've had several of those experiences. And, Ron, for you, what if we talk about lily pad experiences, those moments that make you go, okay, that makes up for the last, like, three years, what would one well, or two of those be for you? Just one of the things real quick I wanted to mention sure. it, it was with he's talking about with, with the, the, you know, Miles Davis, with the, which is where he was kind of going into newer yeah. you know, rock and roll type things. Um, I got to play a, a concert as a cellist in a symphony uh, with Dave Brubeck. Well, and but he didn't have the, the. It wasn't the rest of the group. It was just it was him and his sons, and they were creating. You know, it was it had mm-hmm. electronic keyboards as well as it, something that was completely out of of what Dave Brubeck's comfort zone right. had been. They're still touring. I know. In fact, I ran to one of his sons uh, about two or three years ago when I mentioned that I had played one of the concerts. He remembered exactly when we did those things. I knew he didn't know me because I was just a cellist in the crowd, but he remembered all that, and his, you know, the sons are still doing. Chris, brother, right? Chris, that's who yeah. it was, exactly, oh, so cool. I talked to. Yeah. I hadn't talked to him. You know, I only met him the one time, and it was so great, like 30, 40 years later, to run into him and, and him remember some of the stuff that we did. But, I mean, that was one of the milestones for me is, you know, Dave Brubeck. Or, you know, and these are orchestra settings. I, Benny Goodman, to be able to play That's on right, stage. That's right, you played Benny Goodman, yeah. Well, I was in the orchestra. In the orchestra, I yeah. didn't, you know, although I was asked to join him as a bassist, I was, I was in high school at the time, and I didn't feel right taking a bass away from one of the bass players in the section, I thought I... I you did. look back on that moment now and go, my God. No, I did the right thing because okay, the guy got up there and did, got to do his moment and do that. No, I oh, don't regret that at all. Mm-mm. That's an amazing experience. Those are two pretty large lily pads. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been very... Well, you know, another one that, that I joke about, we've, we've said it, but when I was in L.A., I was doing, the, you know, the heavy metal rock and roll stuff in, in Los Angeles. Well, I had to wear wigs for some of the stuff. You know, the Vinnie Vincent stuff and everything. It was like makeup, you know. <laughs> then we get in with the video shoots where everything come off and you just drive home, you know. <laughs> But, Show's um, over. Uh, Edward Van Halen kept coming by the apartment. We were doing our writing with my partner. And then I ended up going to his house several times teaching him cello. You know, I and Valerie gonna, would yell at me for, for various things. It was, you know. I was going to ask you about that in just a moment, actually. I wanted to bring that up because that's a great story. This next section, folks, is going to be one of my favorites. I kind of titled it on my little producer's notes, Fascinating Moments. And I'm going to turn to you about that one for sure. Enrique, there's a good chance that you were the last person to play with the famous bass player Jaco Pistorius. I believe so, because uh, unfortunately Jaco was homeless at that time. Before you tell us that story, uh, because there are some people uh, that may not know him, they may know him when they hear him, but they may not not know him otherwise. Let me play a 
quick clip of Jocko, and then I want to hear this amazing story. Uh, this is a quick clip of Jocko kind of ripping one of his famous solos. I think this is from the 1982 Montreal Jazz Fest, and this is Jocko Pistorius. <laughs> Okay, so the guy could play. Yeah. Remember, by the way, we just listened to a live recording, right? So again, when I say you very well may be the last piano player to accompany Jocko, tell us I that believe, story. I believe that because uh, he was killed a few days after that, and I don't know if he probably nobody else played with him so after where, where that. So where were you and what, what was this, the story? This was in Fort Lauderdale. We were playing in a benefit for a percussionist that was sick and had to go to the hospital, didn't have money to play to pay the bills. So we went together for a benefit. Was this in a club? And- it was in a mall, in a mall. Okay. I remember it was, a, what is that store, the X something, X Max or something like that. Oh, TJ Max? TJ Max store. <laughs> and you were out, set up in the TJ Max. Well, outside the TJ Max store, it was by night. Right. So we were playing, and all of a sudden, he comes, one guy, completely dirty, smelly, and we were playing, and everybody knew it was Jacko. So you recognized him right off, yeah. even though he was pretty and, rough looking. And uh, he said, can I have a bass? Hell no. Yes. <laughs> and we were playing. No, don't take a bass. And he was, we were playing, I don't remember what or how, and he started playing. I don't know what he was playing, but he was a monster doing something really similar to, to that, but something improv- improvising. I tried to follow as much as I could, but it was practically impossible. The wow. drummer did what he could, and percussion, did what he could. And that lasted for, I don't know, 20 minutes, and he left. So we're talking about a man within days of his death uh, and had been kind of down and out for a bit, walks in a bit of a train wreck, but puts the bass in his hand, and that goes away for the moment. Yeah, playing. it was unbelievable. Wow, uh, that is. And then what... what was it like for you to hear that days later uh, he was found dead on the street? Is no, that no, he, they, he was beat to death. They he beat him. They beat him up. Yeah, and bouncer. He wanted to go in, in one club in Wilton Manors, Florida, near Fort Lauderdale. He's in Fort Lauderdale, as a matter of fact. They didn't let him in, and he said, "No, I want to come in. I'm Jacob Pastorius or whatever." He's tried to fight, and of course, bouncer beat him up, and he died of the injuries. Yeah, it was horrible. So, Ron, how did half-Cuban cello player from Illinois wind up playing rock and roll in L.A.? Well, I, I went to school, college, uh, at the assistance of one of the, the professors there. It's like, you, you know, he wanted me to be a cellist. 
in classical music. And I was kind of, I was getting a little tired of it because it kept, you know, being really highbrow about everything and everything I was doing was not acceptable to them. You know, I'm out doing some jazz gigs or I'm out doing some rock and roll. I'm going, you got to leave that stuff alone. I'm like, no, it's music. I, I feeling at that well, point, yeah. You know, so I went in for uh, a year and then they asked me not to come back. <laughs> I guess you had to go to class. I, I don't know what happened, but I, I uh, left and, and moved to LA and the connection started through that. And what you know. was it that made so really going to LA was was it more about leaving Illinois than it was going to LA? Both, yeah, yeah. Very much so. I was ready to get out of Illinois. There wasn't a whole lot going on. There's some of the you know, from where I was the area I was in, there were some bands that were kind of became something, Aria Speedwagon, uh Sticks. I can't even think of half of them right now, but you know, I knew a lot of those guys and we had, you know, shared some gigs around that kind of stuff. So I knew it could be done. So I moved to LA. Before we talk about your very famous uh, cello student, tell us a little bit about what it was like to assimilate into the L.A. scene. It wasn't that easy, but it wasn't as hard as I, I expected it to be. I mean, I, I, I had a lot of, of, I went out there and, and attended a school called MI, Musicians Institute, uh, got a, a performance certificate or whatever in bass. One of my bass teachers that I will always relish, Ray Brown, Ella Fitzgerald's ex husband yep. at one point. They were married at one point. He did seminars there, and I ended up taking a few things with him. And it was really, it was like, you know, he's one of the most amazing bassists that ever lived. So I was able to, you know, get some of that. And there was a lot of rockers involved with some that. So I was able to kind of start catch, you know, catching that. There was one thing where you're talking about Jocko taking off, and you guys are all trying to, to chase him. Yeah, I had one of those experiences working with a guitarist named Les Wise. He's not a really well-known, but he's a really wonderful jazz guitar player. And it was a trio. And I was like, last-minute call, can you can you sub for me tonight? One of the teachers at, at MI, at BIT, was like Luther Hughes, who played for... Um, Crusaders. The Crusaders, I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, yeah. He was one of the... Luther, uh, Luther Hughes was the bass player, and he asked me to go sub for him with Les Wise. I'm like... Yeah, and I knew who Les was. He's, you know, but he was Les was going through a really bitter divorce, so his mind wasn't always on the music. And Les would substitute chords that substituted other chords that would substitute for other chords. <laughs> so it's easy to get in over your head on those subs. I mean, but the musician in you knows better than to say anything but yes first. Well, ex- I mean, exactly. I've got. To, you know, <laughs> I'm going to turn down a gig, right? That I wouldn't get offered right. again. You know, so I took it, and I remember it was it was uh, trio. And Les was very famous. He went, one, two, one, two, 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 and it was like two changes per bar, flying through, and he's cha- everything substituted. And then he was in the middle of a divorce, so his mind wasn't really on it, so he would skip lines and skip sections. Oh, man. And I'm trying to read this stuff, and he's like, and he goes, bass solo. It was like I had no idea what what to do. And I remember the drummer was this little guy. He's going, comes around the cinema and goes. <laughs> I thought, it's I'm, also known as thank God it's not oh me. Oh my God. It was like, I, oh man. it was like a three hour gig. And within two and a half hours, I had a tension headache that, you know, started here <laughs> and went around to here. I was like, the drive home. It was horrible. It was, but I mean, it was so great because it was challenging. But I know, you know, but I know what you mean. It's like what? 
Well, and as musicians, we have to be in that position of saying yes and trying things. One, from the practical standpoint of getting gigs, but that's also how kind of you grow. If you stay in your lane too much, it's hard to grow, right? Oh, yeah. I have a little story very (laughs) similar to yours, but I was extremely young. I had, I was already, no, not already, I was hardly starting to learn the chords, and I knew like four or five songs. And a piano player friend of mine told me, Enrique, I need to go somewhere that day. Can you go and play for me? I say, what do you play there? Um, oh, we play a little bit of everything. Lie. <laughs> and uh, it was a club, it was a restaurant, it was two blocks away from my house, in the in the sea, beautiful. Like an easy kick. Yeah, they say, they play everything. It's everything you know, one to five, and that's it. When I got there, so it was guitar, bass, and piano, with one little particular inconvenient. They play only tangos, and I knew one. I was going to say you're good for one tango. Everybody's yeah. good for one. So my night was horrible. It was like yours. I didn't develop headache or but I remember I remember at the end of the night the guitar player, beautiful guy, I did recordings with him later. He said, Enrique, here's your money. I love you. I he embrace me. But please don't ever come back. <laughs> Sometimes when the fall is all you got, that's important. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. If I would do it now, I have 50, 60 years of experience, yeah. and I know where he's going to go. But that's where experience comes from, but right? I mean, that's at where, that time, yeah. say, he was playing things like... Show people what, what you were up against with tangos, yeah. like that and I was doing what <laughs> and so, I was going I was going to say can you show us the fake version of that like how you fake your way through that <laughs> things <laughs> like that and I, see, and I root 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 and I did very staccato so it wouldn't last <laughs> note and gone that's like what I you know, bass players it's, it's one of the hardest things I mean you guys too you, you have to fill in the whole chord but you don't have to be on the downbeat, right? Right. Bass player is like, okay, this is where we're going. No, we're not. <laughs> and then everybody turns around and looks at you. Oh, yeah. But then, you, then you have to learn how to make it into something else like that. Or if it's like a note off, you just do a big minor third vibrato <laughs> and you add, land on the and eventually, note. Eventually, you're going to encompass the something note. Something is going to, it's in there. Oh, we closed in it. It's gone. Okay, let's go to the next one. You know that when I saw him, after the piano player that sent me, uh, his name is Enrique too. <laughs> so, what do you do to me? Well, you know, sometimes we play a little. You lie to me. <laughs> I will tell you the songwriter version of that moment is when you forget lyrics and you go to make them up. And occasionally uh, you make, and all you have to do is get the rhyme correct. 
right? And if you get the rhyme structure correct in your makeup line, nobody's the wiser. But there are those moments where you realize your fake line was the wrong rhyme, and when it goes to land on that downbeat, which is the rhyme, well, then you're busted. Yeah. Uh, in, yeah. In, in piano, it's not rhyme like. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> They're going to know. All right, so, Ron, um, I've been waiting all night to say this line. You taught Eddie Van Halen to play the cello. How does that happen? I hate to do it to you, but the hour is up. You'll have to join me for part two to find out all about Ron teaching Eddie Van Halen how to play the cello and to hear a lot more music from these two masters of their craft. Next time on Conversations on Cub Creek. As always, thank you for listening. If you have any topics you'd like us to build a conversation around, drop by the Conversations on Cub Creek Facebook site. And while you're there looking through show notes and behind-the-scenes pictures, drop me a line with your thoughts. If you've enjoyed your time with us on the creek, please leave a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you.